And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, October 25th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of the Federal Drive, it's a small but important detail. Are your foreign contractor employees legit? Plus, agencies get lots of new money to spend on infrastructure permits. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, federal retirees just got the final piece of the puzzle to calculate next year's cost of living adjustment, the COLA. The COLA amount changes, though, depending on the federal retirement system you're in. A 1% difference for 2024 might not sound like that much of an impact, but over time, getting a so-called diet COLA every year can create a big difference in your retirement savings. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman joins me with more. And if you would, Drew, just review for us the type of COLA and how it connects to the annuities. I guess that would be people that are still around under the SERS system versus the bulk of employees who are under FERS. That's exactly right, Tom. There is the difference in the COLA based on whether you are a SERS or a civil service retirement system employee versus a FERS or a federal employee retirement system retiree. So between those two, the, the SERS retirees get the full COLA amount, whatever it is that the Social Security Administration announces uh, for that coming year. This year it was 3.2%, but for FERS retirees, those in the newer system, which started up in the 80s, they get a reduced COLA. The How much it's reduced by depends on how big the COLA is overall. For this year, it was a pretty big COLA, so FERS retirees are getting essentially the largest disparity possible under law, which is a 1% difference. So they have a 2.2% COLA coming to their federal retirement annuities in 2024. So in a sense, the compounding of interest that gives people this great savings over a lifetime works almost in reverse. If you've got the reduced COLA, it multiplies itself downwards over time. That's exactly right. And that's the argument that you hear from a lot of federal organizations, federal unions, and even the retirees themselves saying, you know, even though the goal was kind of to balance out or make it fair between the SERS retirement system and FERS, the difference over time is much, much greater than you might see just for 2024, for example, it might only be a $50 or $100 difference. But if you project that out over much longer, then there can be a a pretty big uh, financial impact there. And some people have actually calculated this to the dollar amount over 20, 30, even 10 years, right? That's right. I spoke with uh, John Hatton. He is an expert at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association, or NARF for short. And the data that NARF collected shows that if you project it out over 30 years or 40 years, depending on how long a retiree lives, you know, even if it's a $100 difference in any given year, if you look 20 years out, for example, you could see a loss of tens of thousands of dollars. If you look out even to maybe 2050, so another 27 years from now, that cumulative loss will hit about $100,000. So this does have quite significant impacts over time. Compared with, you know, if you think about, oh, just for 2024, it's a 1% difference. That's not all that much. And, you know, organizations like NARF say it really compounds over time. Now, there are lots of variations on this. If you were a pure SERS employee, never had another job outside of the federal government, you don't get Social Security, but you get a 
presumably a bigger, fatter annuity. But then you have the WEP and some of the uh, holdbacks on Social Security if you did have another job. So there's that wrinkle. And then there's the first people who just get a reduced COLA because they still have some annuity, but also Social Security. And so it's kind of a strange mix here. Why did Congress set up the FERS this way, do you think, in the first place, way back in the 80s? They must have had a rationale. No, you're, you're right, Tom. And it, there are a couple of things that do make this situation complicated. But if we're looking just at the FERS retirees and when that system was set up back in the 80s, the idea from Congress was to try to keep things fair between the upcoming FERS retirees and those who were part of the older SERS system. So the FERS annuity, it's you can think of it as a, a three-pronged approach to retirement. That's how people generally refer to it as. So you have Social Security, you have the FERS annuity, and you have the thrift savings plan. So the idea was, okay, if they're getting all three of these things and SERS retirees don't see all of those things, then we can, re- Congress said, you know, let's reduce the FERS annuity COLA to help align with the overall value. So, you know, that was the rationale. But of course, you, when you look at the numbers, you have a lot of retirees, those both in SERS or FERS saying, you know, this isn't really fair to, to FERS retirees. So the argument now is in favor of the regular COLA that everybody else on Social Security gets for the FERS retirees on the basis of just equity for for Social Security. Right. You know, not not everyone is going to be in agreement, of course, but generally there is pretty strong consensus for, you know, let's give first retirees the full COLA and essentially like help them get the COLA that is meant to adjust against inflation and uh, better protect the value of their retirement savings. So there is a call for that. Right. And there's a legislative gambit pretty much every year, right? That never goes anywhere. That's right. We've seen the same bill pop up for several years in a row now. It's called the Equal COLA Act. This is something that has been House and Senate legislation. It was introduced this year by Jerry Connolly and also in the Senate. And it would give first retirees the full COLA amount for their first annuities. We haven't seen a ton of traction on this, but you know, it's something that we see a lot of organizations still pushing for and and lawmakers keep reintroducing it, I suppose, with the hope that over time they'll build enough support for that legislation. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, as always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out all of her stories on furs and cola and diet cola and retirement at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, agencies get lots of new money to spend on infrastructure permits and speeding those up. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Several agencies will get a part of $155 million from the Federal Permitting Improvement Steering Council. The money is aimed at helping agencies improve how they review and decide on applications for infrastructure construction. Details now from the council's executive director, Eric Badel. Mr. Badel, good to have you back. Thanks for having me, Tom. It's great to be here. And since we spoke, I guess it was in July, a lot of progress has happened. Tell us about this $155 million. I guess it's part of a larger amount that you will be granting later on. But where did it go and what will it be used for? So the Inflation Reduction Act that was passed included $350 million for the Permitting Council to improve overall efficiency, timeliness, and predictability and performance of the permitting process. So that went into what we have as the Environmental Review Improvement Fund. And that is basically our operating budget, but also 
our kind of resources that we use to support agencies and state local governments and tribal entities to engage and improve on the overall permitting process. So this initial $155 million that was announced was really focused on the immediate needs of our agencies as they grapple with the sudden influx of permitting applications that are resulting from the signature investments of the IIJA and the Inflation Reduction Act and the Chips and Science Act. So as we look across all of our agencies and as they engage on all of these you know, large infrastructure projects, those applications are coming in at a volume that is unprecedented. And we have so many projects before us that we need to ensure that our agencies are effectively and adequately equipped to ensure that they can you know, perform their functions appropriately and be timely in their decision-making. So this $155 million that we are putting out is really focused on staff support, uh, ensuring they have the human capital available to manage this influx of applications. We have a few millions that are going towards IT tools, but that really is kind of the focus of future investments. This initial investment was primarily it's like 80%, 85% of it was going strictly towards just staffing, uh, just making sure we have the right ologists, you know, biologists or ecologists or whatever that we need to do bird surveys or whale surveys or wetland delineation or, you know, folks that do mineral rights and ensuring that we're studying uh, mineral rights agreements to help these construction operation plans for critical mineral mining to move them forward quicker. So it runs the full gambit of uh, our infrastructure sectors that are covered by the Permitting Council, but it is really focused on the people at this point. Got it. And this is then going divided among the 12 bureaus, agencies, and in some cases, whole departments that are part of the council. That's correct. All agencies did not receive funding. Uh, many agencies also received funding directly from the Inflation Reduction Act to support environmental review. So the agencies that actually received funds in this tranche were the Department of Interior and many of its sub-bureaus, Bureau of Land Management, Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, also the Department of Commerce with the NTIA, which does the broadband work, as well as the CHIPS office, which is doing semiconductor work, and then NOAA, uh, which is responsible for Section 7 consultations under the Endangered Species Act, but also marine mammal protection, to ensure that they have the right people available to do those studies and do those consultations. The EPA also received funds for carbon capture sequestration projects. The ACHP, the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation, received funds to hire new staff to just build the capacity for 106 consultations, which is their primary statute. The Department of Agriculture and Forest Service and Rural Utility Development Program also received funds, as well as the Department of Homeland Security. So we had many, if not most, of our agencies that received funds, but not all. The process was really set up to ensure that we identify the agencies with the most immediate needs and then target the investments so that we would have measurable improvements on the permitting timelines. And so we had negotiations and discussions with the agencies to ensure that the money was going where it would be most needed and best spent. We're speaking with Eric Badel. He is executive director of the Federal Permitting Improvement Steering Council. And it's great when guests are right on top of all the details like that. So we, we appreciate that rundown. And what do we know about the nature of the projects? I mean, this is not all windmills and solar farms, sounds like. No. So there are two different types of kind of funds that were provided. We have some that are directed primarily at 
supporting the permitting for the projects that are covered under FAST 41. So our statute that authorizes us to extend coverage to certain types of infrastructure projects that are posted on the permitting dashboard, we have some funds that are going to agencies that will help them specifically to support permitting review for those types of projects. But then there's other money that is going to a broader kind of general improvement and over 100 million of the 155 is going towards just general improvement of permitting for infrastructure projects. And that's not bound to the covered sectors necessarily that are in FAST 41, but rather, you know, all of the work that we are doing and all of the uh, infrastructure that needs to be built, we want to make sure that we have the capacity to expand or improve our, our, our efficiency on those projects as well. Just as an aside, we should point out, I think, as you did in our last interview, the council itself is not a creature of the infrastructure bill, but you go back actually to the Obama administration. That's correct. So we were created in 2015 as part of the Fixing America's Surface Transportation Act. It was an add-on, Title 41, to that piece of legislation that created the agency, which is why we call this the Fast 41 process. You know, we're still a very young agency comparatively to our peers, but you know, we are trying to develop this agency into an entity that is very forward-focused, service-focused, customer-oriented, and the use of these $350 million that Congress provided us to improve the overall performance of permitting is, is a critical tool to ensure that the agencies have the resources they need to do the work necessary to deliver on these infrastructure projects. So basically, you close the gap between shovel-ready and permit-ready. That's one way to look at it. <laughs> uh, I, I think... We are wanting to move these projects through the process effectively, and we're not cutting corners with the process, but rather just making sure that there's enough butts and seats, really, to be able to handle the the workload. That was my next question, actually. Is there some process improvement or some way of changing things, or is the money just going to add people to brute force through old processes that are inefficient inherently? I think it's a multi-pronged approach and kind of an all-of-government approach. The easy response is to add more people to handle the influx, but a longer term and more efficient potentially response is to improve processes, improve technology to automate and to streamline some of these routine application reviews. So you know, this is a, an initial 155 million that's going out to the agencies to, to increase the human capital, but we are also taking a look at what are our long-term investments for information technology that will allow us to do our jobs better and more efficiently? How can we incorporate artificial intelligence into some of the initial intake of applications? How can we improve interoperability among the agencies to share information? The Council on Environmental Quality and the Permitting Council and GSA are actually hosting an IT summit towards the end of the month where we're going to convene a number of agencies and as well as external stakeholders to talk through, like, what's the realm of the possible? Where are the opportunities for us to make really targeted investments that's going to move the needle measurably long-term? You know, hiring more people is is absolutely essential, but it's a Band-Aid. When you take a longer view of improving the permitting process, there is so much more that we could do with people if we take out some of the routine activities and, and actually, you know, leverage their brain power sure. to be thinking creative and innovatively, let automation take care of some of the other stuff. I imagine there is, you know, speaking of automation and artificial intelligence, there might be a way of speeding up things simply by triage. For example, if someone already has a power line and they want to add five cables to it, 
but otherwise there's no other change to the landscape or anything. That's one thing. On the other hand, if you want to clear 50 acres of forest and put up 10 windmills, that's something else entirely. That, that's absolutely true. The environmental permitting regime, you know, it's really focused on the statutes look for impacts to particular resources. And NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act, is the umbrella statute, you know, tries to ensure that agencies take account for what their environmental effects are going to be for their investments and disclose those and, and make a decision based on uh, public engagement and, and public input. But that is the complexity of the review and the, and the length of time that it takes to get through all of those approvals is really based on the complexity and the impact of the project uh, generally. So if you're adding lines to an existing transmission line, if you're just upgrading or adding additional capacity to it, that's a much lower lift than a greenfield development of a new transmission line that's going to cross multiple states and you know different counties and different biomes and whatever else there may be that's going to have uh, multiple permitting approvals, the alignment of those over time to ensure that if you get through state X and state Y has more difficult processes, if they're not aligned, then you could get up to the border of state Y and then you'd be sunk. And so making sure that we are working cross borders to look at the big picture for these projects is absolutely critical. Eric Badel is executive director of the Federal Permitting Improvement Steering Council. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, this career TSA lawyer focuses on everyone else's career. But first, it's a small but important detail. Our foreign contractor employees legit. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. In the endless quest for talent, federal contractors sometimes use foreign employees. A long-running program called E-Verify lets them confirm such employees are eligible to work in the United States. The Government Accountability Office has found, though, agencies aren't consistent in checking the E-Verify system as part of their contractor oversight. We get more now from the GAO's Director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues, Rebecca Gambler. Ms. Gambler, good to have you back. Thank you, Tom. And let's talk about the E-Verify program. This goes back quite some years. This is not like a five-year-old electronic digital services plan, but this goes back decades, correct? That's right, Tom. The program that became the E-Verify program was uh, first established as a pilot program back in the mid-90s, and it is a largely voluntary program that employers can use to verify the employment eligibility status of newly hired employees. But as you mentioned, some employers, uh, particularly federal contractors, can be required to use the E-Verify program. Got it. So the E-Verify, the verification is done to the individual employee, correct, that applies to E-Verify. These are people with green cards, for example? Right, Tom. So for federal contractors who are required to use the E-Verify program, they use that program for all newly hired employees or individuals who are employed and working on the federal contract. So it applies to all employees of the federal contractor to include newly hired employees as well as those working on the contract. But as the process works, if you want someone to work for your company, that person has to get the eligibility from the government. 
I mean, how does it work? Thank you, Tom. Yes. So when employers, and in this case, we're speaking about federal contractors, enroll in the E-Verify program, they sign a memorandum of understanding to participate. The program is run by U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, or E-Verify, and then employers check employees' information against government records to confirm whether or not they're eligible to work in the U.S. All right. And then, as you pointed out, all companies do this, but federal contractors have special obligations. The government wants to make sure that they are checking E-Verify as a backup sort of check from what the government has already issued to those employees. That's right, Tom. By law, all employers are required to confirm the work eligibility of newly hired employees by checking their documents through a process that people may hear referred to as the I-9 process. The E-Verify program is a program that allows employers to electronically confirm that employment authorization beyond the I-9 process or in addition to the I-9 process. It's largely a voluntary program for employers. There are about a million employers who are enrolled in the E-Verify program, but some employers to include federal contractors can be required to use the E-Verify program. And you did some samples of federal agencies to find out whether they were checking over their contractors to make sure the contractors were verifying people through I-9 or through E-Verify. And what were the agencies and what did you find? The Federal Acquisition Regulation, or the FAR, requires federal agencies to include a clause in federal contracts for contractors to enroll in and use the E-Verify program with a few exceptions. So we selected three agencies for our review, the Departments of Defense, Homeland Security, and Health and Human Services, and we selected 24 contracts for our sample. In looking at those 24 contracts, we found that 22 of them did include that required clause in their contracts, the clause requiring them to use E-Verify, and two did not. But the other thing that we looked at, Tom, was whether or not for those contracts, the fact that the E-Verify clause was included was also whether or not that was also noted in the federal procurement data system. And for that piece of the review that we did, we found that not all of the contracts were accurately noted in the federal procurement data system as having the E-Verify clause included in them. We're speaking with Rebecca Gambler. She's Director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues at the Government Accountability Office. So is this a simple record-keeping and compliance type of issue that you found, or could there be uneligible people working on federal contracts, do you think? So with regard to this specific finding, it was really about the three agencies in our review taking steps to better ensure that their contracting staff are correctly noting in the federal procurement data system those contracts that include the E-Verify clause. And that's really important so that federal agencies and Congress and others can have accurate information about the extent to which the required E-Verify clause is being included in federal contracts. And it has to be in every federal contract that involves labor provided by the contractor? 
It needs to be in federal contracts, Tom, that exceed $150,000 and has a period of performance of more than 120 days is not only for work performed outside the U.S. or isn't only for commercially available off-the-shelf technology. So contracts that meet those criteria are required to have that e-verify clause in the contract such that federal contractors would be enrolling in and using e-verify. Got it. And is there a mechanism, though, that once that clause is in the contract, that the employer is actually using E-Verify? Because you can have something in a contract clause, but that doesn't mean it happens. Yes, this is a really important point uh, from our report, Tom. Federal agencies do have responsibilities for monitoring the extent to which federal contractors are complying with the E-Verify clause and actually enrolling in and using the E-Verify program. But among the contracting officials that we interviewed for our work, we found that in a number of cases, federal agencies were not monitoring their contractors' compliance with use of the E-Verify program. They identified a variety of reasons for that, including that they thought maybe another agency was responsible for doing it or because uh, they didn't think they were required to do so. So we made a recommendation, Tom, to OMB to issue guidance to clarify expectations for federal agencies to monitor contractor enrollment in and use of the E-Verify program. Yes, you had a long list or eight recommendations. That sounds like the top of the list. What are the highlights of the other recommendations? We also found that USCIS used to provide periodic reports to federal agencies that included a list of federal contractors and whether or not they enrolled in and used E-Verify. We heard from some contracting officials that those reports were helpful for monitoring purposes, but USCIS stopped issuing those reports last year because of data quality issues. And so we recommended that USCIS implement an approach to collect better quality information on federal contractors' enrollment in the E-Verify program and then make sure that they communicate that information to federal agencies to help them monitor contractor compliance. So that was another key recommendation we had, Tom. So lots of people have work to do, USCIS itself, the Office of Management and Budget, and the contracting agencies themselves all have a task here. That's right. We made recommendations to the three agencies that were included in the scope of our review, as well as OMB and USCIS. And these recommendations are really important to help ensure that the federal government has accurate information on the extent to which the E-Verify clause is being included in contracts to ensure then that federal agencies are appropriately monitoring federal contractors' compliance with the E-Verify clause, and that USCIS is providing quality information to help federal agencies fulfill their monitoring responsibilities. And did you get a mostly, yeah, you're right, kind of reaction to these recommendations? We did. The agencies to which we made the recommendations concurred with them and identified uh, actions that they have planned to work toward addressing them. Rebecca Gambler is Director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still ahead, this career TSA lawyer focuses on everyone else's career. 
This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Americans probably interact with employees of the Transportation Security Administration more than those of any other agency. Behind that workforce are people you don't see as much. One of them has been named Outstanding Senior Executive Professional of the Year from the Senior Executives Association. She's the TSA's Deputy Chief Counsel and the former Assistant Chief Counsel for Employment, Civil Rights, and Labor Policy. Jennifer Ellison joins me now. Ms. Ellison, good to have you on. Good to be here. Thank you. Your career at TSA has really been characterized by dealing with the TSOs and the issues of of the officers that form the core of the agency, fair to say? Yes, absolutely. We handle all employee issues from hire to retire and um, all of the security professionals, including the transportation security officers. And I want to go backwards in time to when they were negotiating the very first contract. I think this is after they voted to become part of the AFGE, if I recall correctly. It was some contention. It took some time to get that established. What did it look like from your standpoint as negotiating on behalf of the agency? I see it in sort of 10-year segments. For the first 10 years of TSA's existence, there was no collective bargaining. The administrators at that time decided that we were a new agency and it wasn't appropriate at that time. However, in 2011, the administrator decided to have limited collective bargaining and limited exclusive representation, and the non-supervisory TSOs elected to have AFGE as their exclusive representative, and we entered into negotiations with them, and in 2012, we achieved the first collective bargaining agreement for TSA and its TSOs, which was really an exciting time participating on that team. We all bonded, for sure, doing that for the first time for the agency. And I think it was successful. And then after that, I proceeded to set up a labor policy group in chief counsel's office to handle all of those issues in partnership with our human capital office. What were the big issues in that negotiation? What is it that the agency needed to have? And what is it that the union and the employees most needed to have? Well, you know, for the agency, of course, security is paramount. And, you know, that was paramount for the employees and the union as well. The union officers are TSA employees, and we're all heading toward the same goal of ensuring mission accomplishment. You know, so some of the limited issues that we had for bargaining the first time were shift bids, annual leave bids, shift trades, things like that. Got it. Because, yeah, I mean, we should probably pause here and say that the job of TSO is a lot harder than it looks to the public, isn't it? It absolutely is. You have to know all of the standard operating procedures. You're dealing with passengers all day long. And, you know, there's a lot to know and a lot to do. There's a rotation throughout the different functions of a screening officer. So there is a lot. Yes. And they're, you know, they're staring at screens and looking for things. Uh, I flew the other day and caught the officer giving a big yawn when my backpack went through. I said, oh, honey, don't yawn now. I mean, there's stuff you got to look at in there. There's, but it came through and she, you know, you can tell how, how hard they work and how long and difficult it is to stare at those screens. And then more recently, there has been a new framework caused by Congress's agreeing that TSO should be paid more in accordance with the GS schedule, which does not apply at TSA, but the equivalent. What was that all about? And also, what are some of the other elements of the workforce experience that Secretary Mayorkas has wanted to bring to TSOs? 
So I love talking about our new compensation plan because it was so monumental and so important for the workforce and for the agency. Secretary Mayorkas in June 2021 issued a memo that outlined workforce initiatives for TSA. Historically, TSA has not been able to keep up with the general schedule because we weren't funded for that. Um, We weren't funded for pay increases commensurate with the general schedule, like within within grade increases. So as a result, employee pay kept falling behind uh, comparators in the federal government. And of course, it created recruitment and retention issues and morale issues and, and the like. So after the secretary issued that memo, we worked to develop the pay plan, worked through the budget process, the justifications, all of it. And Congress approved funding for the pay plan. It was included in the FY23 omnibus appropriations, which was signed this past December. And so in July, we were able to implement the new pay plan, bringing the salaries of TSA workforce to a level equal to their federal counterparts. So this was never, you know, an effort to get something extra. This was to bring us up to the level of federal comparators for the important work that our security professionals do to accomplish the mission each and every day. But you had the funds from Congress as well as the mandate to do that. So it wasn't like you had to go scrounging elsewhere to pay for an increase that Congress had demanded. That's right. Congress provided the funding and the appropriations. And, you know, this initiative was just so important for all segments of the TSA workforce. So we talk about the TSOs who we see at the airports every day. But um, like you said, at the start of this, there are other people behind that as well. Other security professionals, the federal air marshals, canine handlers, explosive specialists, inspectors, cybersecurity specialists, intelligence analysts. And I can keep going. You know, everyone that contributes to our security mission, this pay plan was was really, really important. We're speaking with Jennifer Ellison. She's Deputy Chief Counsel at the Transportation Security Administration and Outstanding Senior Executive Professional of the Year, as cited by the Senior Executives Association. And you have a long time in labor relations, labor policy, compared to what you understand of your counterparts, say, in the private sector or even in agencies that have the GS schedule. What are the challenges in labor work for a federal agency such as TSA? Yeah, so I would say that, you know, pay was so fundamental, you know, at the basic level, it's life changing for each individual employee. And no matter how committed to the mission you are, you still need fair pay, right? You still need fair pay commensurate with your work as a federal security professional. And, you know, for mission accomplishment at the agency, you don't want to lose experienced security professionals because TSA isn't able to compete with the federal agency next door. So, This was just so important for us. You know, we've had attrition and morale issues due to the pay. So the new pay plan will enable TSA to better recruit and retain top candidates. It's also, you know, going to free up some resources because when you're constantly in a cycle of recruit, hire, train for significant numbers of employees, it takes a lot of resources that could otherwise be used for other positive enhancements for the workforce. So, for example, the TSO new hire training has a cost, time, money, space, trainers. I know you had my colleague on a few months ago to talk about Academy West, our new training academy in Las Vegas. Yes, indeed. Um, you know, yes, and we conduct new hire training there. So with a decrease 
increase in our attrition rates rather than constantly cycling through new hire training for large numbers of new employees, those facilities at Academy West, those trainers can be used for other initiatives like increased training on the use of advanced technology or increased training on passenger engagement, things like that. So, you know, we're really excited about all of it. All right. And with respect to the on the job day to day issues besides pay, Earlier, you said the negotiations involve shift selection and so forth. I remember one of the early complaints of the TSOs was that they had random shifts, and that was thought to be a security measure, so they couldn't, I don't know, maybe get too palsy-walsy with frequent flyers or something, that you know, people that take the same shuttle every week, that type of thing, a long time ago. What does it look like now in terms of morale? I mean, have things improved, and are some of those... Ad- issues out of the way, shift selection, vacation selection, the other things that go into the component of a good experience besides the salary. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the elements of the Secretary's workforce initiatives was also expanding the labor framework. And, you know, as I said earlier, we are outside Title V generally. So our transportation security officers are not under Chapter 71, which is the labor management statute, the chapter of Title V. So part of this initiative in the last two years was um, expanding the labor framework. It's under the administrator's authorities under the Aviation and Transportation Security Act and expanding the labor framework to mirror more generally Title V, Chapter 71 rights for the union and for the employees. So, you know, as part of that, the administrator issued a new labor determination once we got all the funding in December, and he issued the new labor determination the very next day after enactment of the appropriations bill. And, you know, since then, TSA and AFGE have been working cooperatively together, agreeing to several memoranda of agreement, and we're now currently engaged in collective bargaining or right. an expanded agreement. Okay, and what's the timeline for that one? Hopefully, sometime soon, we'll have a new CBA. We're working through all the issues. Obviously, there's more issues this time than before, because before, as I said, it was limited to 10 or 11 issues. Um, And now it's the full gamut, as if we were under Chapter 71. Right, because some of those negotiations take hundreds of, there's hundreds of clauses. Yes, and we're working through them. We're working through all the issues, and we hope to have an agreement sometime soon. Sounds like you've got a pretty good team with you too, huh? You know, nothing of this magnitude gets done by one person, of course. So there was amazing collaboration um, with the department and within TSA, um, the Human Capital Office, the Chief Finance Office, and um, my office, the Office of Chief Counsel, worked in partnership really the whole way through to ensure success. So it was a fantastic effort by everyone involved. My general law team is the best in the business, and they were super committed to the success of these initiatives as well. So I just want to thank them too. And you can't forget the administrator's leadership in making all of this happen. Administrator Pekoski was an amazing champion, and I'm fortunate to have played a part in all of it. Jennifer Ellison is Deputy Chief Counsel at the Transportation Security Administration and Outstanding Senior Executive Professional of the Year from the Senior Executives Association. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. There aren't many cell towers in the middle of the ocean, but the Navy thinks 5G technology could be extremely useful for connecting its ships, even when they are in the middle of the ocean. That, plus low Earth orbit satellite communications, could be game changers when it comes to what the Navy's afloat community can do from an IT perspective. 
The Naval Information Warfare Systems Command has been experimenting with those technologies. Officials are optimistic about what they can do. Rob Walborski is NAVWAR's chief engineer. He talked about the ongoing work with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. The capability that is in orbit today is up to multiple orders of magnitude more bandwidth that we can deliver to the fleet and the warfighter um, today. And it is a catalyst for a significant amount of activity and transformation. Um, a lot of it is, is related to the quality of service and not just the warfighting end of what we do with our bandwidth, but everything has been moved to the cloud. Everything's done in a networked way. And when the ships would sail out to sea, um, a lot of the business and things that sailors needed to go do um, were significantly limited, and it, it impacted them in their ability to conduct their own training, um, logistics, personal matters, banking matters, even connectivity back to home. Um, all these things were basically virtually turned off when we were out at sea. And understand that there are times where we're not going to be able to communicate most of the time in benign environments during normal fleet operations. This is just a catalyst for what I would consider to be a transformation of um, dramatic proportions for the Navy. I want to come back to P. Leo, but let's talk a little bit about 5G here, because some of that is a little bit um, unintuitive for the reason that there are not a lot of 5G cell towers in the middle of, of oceans. What's the specific 5G use case that, that you all see, especially in that afloat environment? Well, there's some things. Communications between ships can be done via 5G. Um, communication to airborne assets can be done using 5G in the afloat domain. But also operating in littorals and other things. Um, it, it, the, the goal for us is to provide the fleet and the warfighters with the maximum amount of options and alternatives and paths as we possibly can to be able to transmit and receive um, critical data, operational data, quality of service information to the fleet and the warfighter. Out in the blue water domain, internal to the ship, there's some leverage and uses for 5G. And then there's future capabilities that haven't been fully developed yet in 5G that may also lend itself to some more finding applications. Hey, uh, Jared, I'll add that as the ships in port or going into port, 5G is multiple orders of magnitude more throughput than what they get today, typically through peer side, physical umbilical connections. And the physical connections are fragile and break and cost a lot of money. And you have to have a team of people to be able to connect these things. If you can come into port and seamlessly connect to the shore infrastructure with significantly more bandwidth and throughput, it's another benefit to the platforms. And we're doing quite a bit of experimentation and work right now on the ships as a peer surrogate to do 5G and other things. So, And it's, it's actually demonstrating significant benefit to the fleet. Without getting too far into the technical weeds and, and obviously without getting to, into classified territory, can you, can you all give us some sense of how far along you are in those research and experimentation efforts? R really what I'm trying to get at is how far away do you see it um, w where this is actually real and operational in the fleet, 5G or PLEO? Well, yeah, today we have PLEO in the fleet today. And we've developed kind of a open architecture 
system called Sting that's out of PMW 170 here in PEOC4I. And right now it's used to connect um, Starlink, but as new providers, and there are a significant number of new PLEO providers that are emerging onto the scene, we will have the ability to use and leverage multiple different PLEO products, capabilities, and constellations simultaneously in the shipboard domain. So the first stage um, of staying in PLEO connectivity is being del delivered to the fleet today. And we're moving as fast as we physically can to make this happen for the fleet. And it's ahead of you know things like the POM and the requirements process, the DOD 5000. We're not necessarily, we're operating within the confines of that, but we're also moving faster and um, more aggressively co coordinating with the fleet and sharing the cost in advance of all of this becoming some big program of record. I'm providing the engineering discipline and rigor to make sure that it's being delivered properly. It's being properly secured, properly dealt. We're, we're assessing the EMI and all the things that you need to do to get this on the ships as fast as we can. And um, I think we're at the, the very, very beginning as we stated, it's by 2030, they expect over 50,000 satellites in orbit. Today, there are thousands of satellites in orbit providing an extremely robust and valuable capability for quality of service. So we're moving as fast as we can. With respect to 5G, a lot of the work in 5G is um, more focused on the base side, although we do have some capability that we're testing on ships today. We've done a lot of uh, warehousing, modern warehouse, things with 5G and we're doing peer surrogates with 5G now under the OSD Pathfinder efforts. And those things are going to be, as soon as we're done with the Pathfinders, they'll immediately be in service. But they're service, serving the fleet today. Rob Walborski, the chief engineer for the Naval Information Warfare Systems Command, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. For more on their conversation, check out the latest edition of On DoD at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.